Banks interference exposed, demand action to save communities. And G20 meetings prove we were lied to. Coming up on this week's episode of The Citizens Report. Welcome to The Citizens Report. It's the 18th of November 2022. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder and leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Robbie. In this week's Citizens Report, we're going to talk about a push for a proper parliamentary um, raking over the coals of what the banks have set up to be a farcical process in the way they tried to rig the Regional Banking Task Force and we did an inquiry into the whole mess of what the banks are doing out there in regional Australia. Um, and we're going we're gonna to point out the obvious, Craig, about what's happened at the G20 in terms of the, how the smiling faces there contrast to all the hysteria of the last five years. Mm. Um, and we're also in a bit of a hurry, so let's do this efficiently. <laughs> I'm going to, um, before we get going though, uh, remember to like the show, please. Um, if, you don't, if you're not a subscriber, subscribe to it. Share the show widely to help us get around and comment on the um, uh, make comments in the comment section that helps just to get the conversation um, going also Craig before we start um, just a, a reminder about the inquiry uh, into ASIC that's underway in mm -hmm. the Senate mm -hmm. and these are um, th these are inquiries I, I, some people might think our inquiries are talk fest well it depends on what the people do right you engage with them and stop them don't let them be a talk fest and in this particular case the, the 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 committee running the inquiry really 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 they've they've indicated quite strongly they want to hear cases they want to hear submissions all right so this is a big inquiry you've got till the third of february to get your submissions in but don't dilly dally the committee wants to hear your case if so if you've had an experience with asic and it's only by contrasting asic's public facade with the real-life cases of the people it's supposed to be regulating the system for, will the people who make the laws be able to see, okay, this is a failing system, we have to fix it, right? And then you've got to make them more afraid of you than they are of the banks. Mm. So get involved in the inquiry, please, um, and we'll, we'll put the link below to the, uh, the, the website. Um, all right, Craig, let's get into it. <clears throat> banks' interference exposed demand action to save communities. And what we're talking about is a bit of our theme of the last uh, few weeks. The what's happening to regional banks with the with the closures, and the need for an inquiry. Now, I misled the audience last week, Craig. Yeah, I know you did quite a bit, Robbie. Quite a bit. I apologise for that. Um, it was inadvertent. I told you last week that shockingly, since the um, regional banking task force report was published on the 30th of September. 22 more banks have shut down. That's what I told you last week. I was wrong. 72 more banks have shut down. They've either shut down or their um, impending closure has been announced. 72. There's almost as many bank branches shut in the last six weeks as in the entirety of 2021, which is when it was so alarming that, that they convened the Regional Banking Task Force. Right, so this is a serious, serious issue. This task force has given the banks the green light 
to go nuts on shutting their branches. They've taken it as the green light. Um, and the consequences are dire. So we've been dealing with the, um, the Shire of Cooper Pedy, uh, Craig, because mm. they've, they're really uh, cactus at the moment. Um, I don't know if they have cactus out there, but um, <laughs> they probably do. Close to it. Close to, close to it. Uh, they have one bank, Westpac, a Westpac branch, and it's going to shut down in February, they've just been told. That means this is, a, this is a town that relies on cash a lot for the tourist trade, and the, the opal trade. Um, the nearest bank to Cooperpedia will now be 540 kilometres away. Now, wait, there's more. On top of that, the communities north of Cooperpedia is right in the centre of South Australia. The communities north of Cooperpedia, um, like Marla, mm -hmm. which has a licensed post office, which is 200 plus kilometres north of Cooperpedia, that community, they drive the hundred, hundreds of kilometres to Cooperpedia to bank already. So now that they will be going 700, 800 plus kilometres, sometimes 1,000 kilometres to get to their nearest bank. Why would they need a bank? Well, that's where you get cash from that these communities need in order to transact. This is the, the middle of Central Australia people, right? Now, <clears throat> as we showed last week though, Craig, the banks are lying hmm. about their reasons. They're claiming... We are responding to the market. The market is moving away from cash and moving away from branches and it's going to digital banking. That's what the banks are claiming, right? What we showed last week by their own figures is no, they are putting excruciating pressure on their staff, demanding that they sign up, everybody walks in a bank door to digital banking and little old grandmas are leaving banks with pieces of paper that have their username and passwords on it and absolutely no clue what to do, except the day somebody calls up and says, oh, hello, this is so-and-so from such-and-such. -such. You have a computer problem. I'm here to solve it. Oh, really? Oh, thank you very much. Um, now, turn on your scammed. computer. Turn on your computer. Oh, now, did you get a, did you get a piece of paper from the bank with how you log into your bank account. Oh, yes. Can you please give us that? No worries. Right? Yep. That's what the banks are exposing people to by doing this. They are lying. They're, they're claiming they're getting 90% of their customers registered, but only 25% are using it. The majority are not using it, yet they're lying. Based, they're just using the registration figure to say, we can shut all these branches down. And they're not unprofitable branches, Craig. No, well, Robin, I did a presentation on Wednesday night to our members, and one of the key things is go back to the 1937 Royal Commission when Ben Chifley, the, the Treasurer and the Prime Minister of this country, wrote a dissenting report about exactly this thing. You know what he said? He said, banking differs from any other form of business because any action, good or bad, by a banking system affects almost every phase of national life. Yes. A banking policy should have one aim service for the general good of the community. The making of profit is not necessary to such a profit policy. <laughs> so he wanted to nationalise the banking system back then because the, the principle that we stand for as an organisation of the idea of the general welfare of the population comes first. And guess what? Banks have no interest in this whatsoever because they've been proven time and time and time and time again that when the economy needs credit the most, they contract it, yeah. And then they're prepared to speculate when it's in so-called better times. They'll speculate on anything that moves in order to make a buck. Everything's always in their favour. 
That's correct. Right? And that's what Ben Chifley said. And he wrote a dissenting report on this and, and nailed it. And that was in 1937. Haven't we learned yet? Yeah, that was a, <clears throat> can I say, that was a really good inquiry, the 1937 Banking Royal Commission. What's extraordinary is we're having this conversation now just after the government conducted an inquiry called the Regional Banking Task Force. Mm. But that task force is what has given the banks the green light. And big surprise, why? Because they ran the task force. There were 11 representatives on that task force, members of the task force. Eight of the 11 represented banks. Eight of the 11. That's what the government, the Morrison and government set up as a task force. And what's worse though, Craig, you've got a, you've got a union, which is affiliated with the Labor Party, the Finance Sector Union. They criticised this task force. They called it for what it was. They called it an election stunt. They said, this is garbage what this task force is doing. Yet the new Albanese government took the task force findings as if it were its own and published them. And why would they do that? Well, I've, we've, we're putting out a press release today where we've posed the question, would they do that because maybe Anna Bly, one of their own, a Labor person, is the head of the banking association, which is the, the lobby for the banks, which wants the green light to do what they're doing? And see, Craig, let me just explain something about... Um, the, the, the main feature of Australia's banking system is an oligopoly, mm. right? Now, so to understand that, um, you know what a monopoly is? A monopoly means that business has a captive market. You don't have a choice apart from that business. An oligopoly is two or three businesses basically work together and it's the same kind of captive well, market. Well, they operate as a monopoly together, but exactly. they different choices. So because there's a few, few of yeah. them you call an oligopoly, right? So yeah, they control 80% of the market. So yeah, there's 20% on the fringes, et cetera. But those 20, those much, much, they're much, much smaller financial institutions. And unfortunately, they don't count in this regard. And so what the banks know, that when they're shutting down these branches everywhere, they can, they're taking advantage of their status as an oligopoly because you're a captive market and there's really not that much you can do unless we get up a postal bank and provide an alternative, of course, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, uh, that's what they were taking advantage of with this regional banking task force. And that's what Anna Bly represents. And here's, they, they control the Labor, the Liberal Party. They, they gave them $14 million in donations in the last nine years. But they also gave the Labor Party $9.5 million in donations in the last nine years, Craig. And these are not, this is not charity. No. Right? They expect something for that money and they're getting it. And the, the, them um, uh, publishing this is, is uh, an example. Now, we went looking uh, through the regional banking uh, task force inquiry and what we noticed is this report that came was handed down which which entirely gave the banks a green light there were a bunch of submissions where the people making the submissions called them out and said what are you doing you're assuming that this is legitimate that the banks are shutting branches and it's legitimate that regional australia shouldn't have banking services this is the premise of this task force is rubbish and the, and the kind of criticisms came from the Law Society of New South Wales, the Australian Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman, the Australian Retail Association, Banking Code Compliance Committee, Combined Pensioners and Superintendents Association of New South Wales, Berriganshire Council was a really hard-hitting submission on this, um, on this uh, matter. They opened by saying, why is the task force consulting on objectives focused on, legit on legitimising regional and remote bank branch closures? Right, so they knew what the game was, all of those submissions were ignored in the final report, right? This was something that the government and now the Labor, the former government and now the Labor Party allowed the banks to completely rig this process. So what's happened is this week, 
two experts, real experts in the subject. Dale Webster, the independent award-winning journalist who has spent the last few years of her life documenting extensively how bad the problem is out there. She has teamed up with Martin North from Digital Finance Analytics, someone we collaborate with quite regularly, but Martin is a banking consultant and a banking expert. They've written to the Senate Rural and Regional Affairs and Transport Committee requesting that they open a new inquiry that the Regional Banking Task Force should have been, but wasn't because the banks rigged it, right? A proper parliamentary inquiry to look at the problem of bank branch closures properly, following on from the last time they did an inquiry like this in 2004, right, 18 years ago, but also look at the way this, re this um, uh, regional banking task force was set up. And they posed some, I want to read out some of the questions that they've posed in the letter that need to be questioned about this regional banking task force, that the banks could be allowed to rig a public parliamentary process like they have, right? So um, these they call these serious issues of propriety around the establishment, conduct and impact of the regional banking task force, including the invitation extended to the banking industry to be involved in setting the terms of reference of an investigation into its own commercial activities, the banks and banking industry taking part in a consultation on which they would ultimately be instrumental in writing a final government report, giving them unprecedented control of the government narrative of this issue, on this issue, imbalance in representation on the task force with banks significantly outnumbering representatives of affected communities and stakeholders, misalignment of community expectations and the task force's agenda, failure to consult appropriately, including face-to-face -face opportunities and the lightning consultation period allowed for written submissions, use of the task force to consult on objectives focused on legitimising regional and remote bank branch closures, the use of the final report to push bank agendas for closing branches, interference in the final report to provide a solution to legal issues being faced at the time by a number of banks, in relation to the misreporting of government data, impact of a tainted report now being part of the government record and being used by the banking regulator to justify inaction on serious breaches of the Financial Services Collection of Data Act 2001, and finally, the acceleration of branch closures since the task force report was released on September 30, 72 regional branches in six weeks. Those, those questions themselves are quite damning to show you this was a very, very flawed process, mm -hmm. right? Mm. And um, I'm conscious, Craig, when we talk about stuff like this, there's a, there's a tendency in all of us, including the listeners, to think, well, tell us what else is new. The whole system's corrupt. Well, of course it is, because, we, because you know, give us the benefit of the doubt. H half the reason it's corrupt is because of our ignorance, right? Um, what did you say once? We've got to shift the fridge? Yeah. Right? You shine a light on the cockroaches underneath. Shine a light on the cockroaches. Otherwise, I'll just... Be Happily live there. Exactly. That's what this process is, right? We've got to be involved. You can't, we may be starting late in the game, potentially, right? But we've got to shift the fridge, let the cockroach scurry, scurry so we can see what's actually going on. I think and that the process... public being engaged is very important. But also, Robbie, uh, I think it's starting to play, take place in the parliament itself because, I mean, you mentioned this week, which is good, that, uh, you know, Malcolm Roberts back in 2019 began to actually take on the sacred cow of the Reserve Bank yep. and just started to shine the light on the Reserve Bank and demanded that they come into the Parliament and explain their actions. Now, I've been in this game you know, for 34 years and I've never seen this actually take place before where the RBA 
the, the, our central bank is now being asked to explain itself as to what the policies are because there's an entire hidden agenda here which unfortunately many MPs aren't aware about and that's the nature of public credit. And well, before you, let me set that up for you because we want to play a clip. But before we do that, um, uh, we're, what we're asking the public to do is get behind this call by yep. Dale Webster and Martin Definitely. North for an inquiry. So there's a, there's a, we'll link to the press release below. Next week, Parliament's sitting. I'm going to be up there with Glenn Isherwood talking to the members of Parliament about the need for this and, and the other issues we're on about. But the terms of reference that's been suggested for an inquiry, Craig, include looking at the case for a government bank to operate through post, the post office network, right? A government bank, that's the key, a public postal bank. And back to what you were saying, there has been this, this um, series of, of opportunities to question the RBA now. Mm. And last week was almost inadvertently, from a somewhat unusual quarter, uh, the biggest doozy of all was asked, and the answer was quite revealing. Now, now the, the person who asked the question is Senator Matt Canavan. We're going to play the tape here. But before we do, Matt Canavan is the chair of the committee that we want to conduct this inquiry into what's happening with the, with, the, um, with the regional banks and a postal bank, right? He's going to chair this committee. So bear that in mind. When you watch him ask this question to the RBA, because what he's asking is relating to the RBA, the RBA, Craig, is a government bank. The government owns this bank, mm -hmm. and you'll see that's relevant to the answer. Mm -hmm. And bear that in mind. When we come back, we're going to talk about how that relates to our postal bank. Yep. All right, so watch the clip. Going now to Senator Canavan. Uh, thank you very much, Chair. Um, thank you, uh, Ms Bullock. Um, Ms Bullock, is the RBA bankrupt? No, the RBA is, is, not, is not bankrupt. We can still continue to meet our operations and uh, perform our operations and meet our, meet our uh, debts and so on, so no, we are not bankrupt. In your annual report, I'm sure you're aware in the statement of your financial position, uh, for 2022, you have net negative equity of uh, $12.5 billion. Yes, that's um, right. I mean, on what basis are you, <laughs> in a normal world, a going concern with net negative equity of $12.5 billion? Um, there's a couple of reasons. One is because we actually have the ability to create money, if you like, so we can continue to meet debts and we can continue to pay. Um, the second reason is that um, ultimately the Reserve Bank is guaranteed by the government um, and um, if you think about the $12 billion in the context of the government budget and GDP, it's actually very small. I'll so come back to that. We're not I mean, uh, uh, you're probably aware, uh, Mr John Keogh wrote in the Australian Financial Review that uh, if the Reserve, on, this was on September 21st, I think when your accounts perhaps came out, he, he, he said if the Reserve Bank of Australia was a commercial bank or hedge fund, it would be bankrupt. So yes. do you disagree with that? Because it sounds like the only reason you're not bankrupt is because you can print money and obviously um, a commercial bank yes, can't do that. Yes, because the central bank is not a commercial bank. Yeah. That, is, yeah. that is true. All right. Craig? Yep. Take it away. <laughs> well, the, the, Robbie, I... The last person that said that, what Michelle Bullock just said, yeah. was Denison Miller, that, from what I know, I agree. publicly in uh, about so 1912. He? he was the actual governor of the original Commonwealth Bank. Yeah. The original Commonwealth Bank. Now, a little bit of history here. You know, he was approached after the war and he said, uh, he was asked if it was true that uh, he, the Commonwealth Bank had funded the war to the tune of £350 million. Now, 
Think about it in today's terms. That's about $25 billion in today's mm. terms, roughly speaking, right? And he said, yes, such was the case, and I could have financed the country for a further sum had the war continued, right? And then he went on to say it was also available in peacetime. That sort of, where was the bank getting this sort of money? Well, Michelle Bullock let it out of the bag. Central banks, like the original Commonwealth Bank and now like the RBA, have the ability to literally print money. And what do they use? They use the wealth and the capital of the nation. Now, that makes that, the, the central bank, the RBA, fundamentally different than any other commercial bank, but it also represents the power of our postal bank, the power of a national bank. So when Denison Miller set up the Commonwealth Bank, he did so with no capital. Yep. And everyone poured their money in. He was able to stop runs on the bank because of a changing economic concerns during World War, you know, when World War I broke out. And there was a, you know, questions of the economy come up because of you know, ships being blocked and Australia's trade being shut down and but so his, forth. But his quote was, very similar to Bullock's, but in a more explicit way, um, we are starting this bank without capital because we are backed by the full cool. wealth and credit of the Commonwealth of Australia. Exactly, and that's and you know, when when the war came around, there was nine, sorry, ten uh, bond issues to fund a war. It was all backed by the Commonwealth Bank. Those things were oversubscribed because the confidence that people had, because their bank was backed by the the wealth of the nation, is where you know our postal bank derives its power. Now this is the this is the shocking thing that people have to realise. This is the nature of actual public credit. Yeah. The public credit belongs to you, the people. It doesn't belong to the private banking system. The problem is that our politicians, unfortunately, not all of them, but a number of it, most of our politicians don't get it, that they're in there representing the interests of, supposedly interests of the people, but in fact they're interested, representing the interests of the banks because this fundamental issue of public credit is not taken on. It has in the past by, you know, people like Curtin and Chifley knew this stuff and they used it in World War II to save us. By this was the roaring debate for almost the whole of the history of Australia until Hawke and Keating came along. Yeah, look, you have a look at the uh, Rural Reconstruction Finance Corporation in the United States that Roosevelt used in order to fund the war and to take America out of the Depression. That was the equivalent, Robbie, of approximately a trillion dollars. It yeah. wasn't part of the US budget. It was a trillion dollars of public credit, which nearly all of it was paid back, except that which was written off to, to fund the war. But effectively, that public credit went into pulling out the United States from the Depression. And what people don't realise is that depression wasn't caused... That, that depression was caused deliberately because of the same policies we have today that restricted public credit wouldn't allow the development of the economy. Instead, it went purely, anything the banks did went purely to speculation and to, to funding their own interests. And everything that was done to try and pull the economy out was done on the basis of trying to, survive, uh, to, to support the banks first and foremost, and everyone else just had to wait in line. And yeah. it never worked. Yeah, and Craig, importantly, the, in the comments, in the, um, the examples you've given, because Michelle Bullock and Matt Canavan both referenced the term creating money. And Michelle yeah. Bullock was explicit about that. And you've talked about creating money or printing money. People might initially think, well, oh, hang on, that has risk. Well, of course it does. But in every example you've given, that money was invested into the economy through productive means. And that means the economy expands. Yep. There's more economic activities. Therefore, the money is paid back because the economy is growing. Yep. 
But when you talk about speculation, it just gets stuck into paper money. Nothing gets expanded. It's completely parasitical, and that's where the problem comes in. Now, listen, I, I, um, uh, uh, I just wanted to highlight that around the time that, in the same hearing that Matt, Matt Canavan asked that question, Jared Rennick had asked a series of questions. We played some of it last week where he asked about the Bank for International Settlements. But before that, he asked about the RBA's free money to the banks yeah. where they're using this, the power they have now to create credit, they've used to create hundreds of billions of dollars, sorry, create money, hundreds of billions of dollars that Jared pointed out that they, are, they have lent to the banks at either 0.1% or 0.25%. Those banks are free to re-lend that money at commercial rates of up to 6%. Or if they don't want to do that, they park it with the Reserve Bank overnight at th over 3%. And so the money they've borrowed from the Reserve Bank at 0.1 or 0.25%, they're, they're lending back to the Reserve Bank overnight at 3 plus percent, hmm. right? This is free money. And so the point that, and, then, and Matt Canavan, we, we haven't played that part of the clip, but the point that um, both these guys made to the Reserve Bank is they're using this capacity that Michelle Bullock admits they have not to fund infrastructure for Australians, but to fund the banks for their profits. And Martin North estimates the amount of money that, that ends up on the balance, on the profit loss statement as pure profit, is $6 billion. Mm. $6 billion a year. And we're asking these banks to stop shutting down branches that are costing them a couple of million dollars a year. To, to ruin to, to totally severely disrupt the lives of their the, 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 um, of their customers. Um, anyway, this is the, this is the number of the issue, yes. right? We've there's a reason we've focused on this all along, and we're not just going after the bank's bad behaviour here because in its own terms, but because it exposes what you quoted chiefly before. We want and why we need the public. Option. We need public credit. We need the the, yeah. the wealth of our nation to be used as a means of investing in our nation. Yep. That's all it is. It's that simple. But we don't want the wealth of our nation taken aside and given to the private banks to use in order to screw us and actually create war in the end because they're trying to protect their system. 100%. So just before we move on, remember, click on the link below for the press release. Call. What you need to do is call or email every senator in your, in your state this weekend and early next week. Call them all. Or Email them over the weekend, call them next week. Tell them you, sh you must support an inquiry into regional bank closures and a postal bank. Mm. All right? Very, very important. And I'll be up there to, to um, walk the corridors of Parliament, Craig, and hear the phones ringing in all the offices as I walk past, knowing that it's people who watch the citizen report, citizens' report um, badgering members of Parliament, which is a beautiful... It's beautiful music to me. It drives them nuts, but that's good. Okay, let's move on because we're running short of time. Um, G20 meetings prove we were lied to. And I've got to do this because, you know, regular viewers of our show will know we've taken a tone. We, we have been the outliers in Australia. We've been the contrarians on the China issue. We've looked down this camera a hundred times and said, this is garbage. Only because, Robbie, the population's <laughs> changed, not us. Yes. You know, look, we, we, you know, there was a great deal of support for China going back to, what, yep. three, four years ago. It's all changed because of the operation that's been run against China. It's principally I mean, we were never happy States. that our, We were never happy that all our manufacturing moved over there as well. No, China no, no. didn't steal it, right? We Free let it go. Nut jobs in our government outsourced it. You know, and now they're, they're outsourcing to other countries. Anyway, so it was always rubbish. So look at the photos, Craig. Look at Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. Look at those smiles. 
Look at Xi Jinping and Anthony Albanese and look at those smiles. And you tell me, haven't we been told for the last five years at least that Xi is essentially Hitler, that China is genociding, China's like the Nazis, they're genociding Muslims, they're harvesting organs from live victims, they're suppressing Hong Kong, they're invading the South China Sea, they're threatening the world. That's what we've been told. If that guy is the equivalent of Hitler, why are we smiling and shaking his hand? Because it's rubbish. Absolute, utter garbage. And it always was. Um, you don't have to agree with everything that a country like China does, but the demonization of the other, and it's China now, Before it's, it's been Russia for a long time, it was Iraq before we invaded it, it was Libya before we invaded it. We, the countries that we target for geopolitical reasons, we demonize them to death, and the public just sit there and let this stuff you know, pour into their ears, basically. Which is what's happening with Russia right now and Putin, Robbie, exactly. because the intention is not to allow Russia to develop and not to have the sort of collaborative relationship with other countries because this threatens the Western world. I mean, we're looking at an entire realignment of the world's financial and monetary system away from the US dollar now because countries look at the US and they look at the, having their, all their money in US bonds and stuff and they say, well, if the US can step in and literally steal people's you know, sovereign wealth, like country sovereign wealth, I don't think we want to have too much to do with them. Exactly. And plus, when the US dollar became the reserve currency, Craig, it was the most powerful economy in the world yeah. by far. And now, now look... It does not... That, that America doesn't exist anymore. No, you've got China's now risen to the, the number one position. And, you know, you have the whole BRICS countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, creating an entire new alignment, which many, many countries want to jump into. They don't want to jump into the bed into the bed with Western countries that are going for war and economic chaos and everything you see around the Ukraine war. You know, you yep. just you're just seeing a complete realignment. Well, what I'm what I was interested in, apart from the fact that our government clearly wanted to have this meeting with Xi Jinping, and it went well, even though Anthony Albanese, it was a 32. You know, thank God Biden and Xi had one for three hours because that gave Albanese cover to have one for 32 minutes. He claimed to the press that he had this whole checklist of complaints about China's human rights he went through. I think he's lying because they had a 32-minute meeting. If, if Albo was honest about going through that whole checklist of complaints, they wouldn't have had time for a meeting, right? These meetings are agreed to beforehand and the agenda is agreed to beforehand. This was Albo's way of placating the press because the press is a bit slow to catch on in Australia. The general press actually accepted in the, the general media report in the TV news was, okay, that was reported as a positive. But you've got sticklers like, I've got to read this headline out by Peter Harcher in the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, he's, one of, he's been one of the biggest dirtbags in the media, demonising China to death on behalf of the intelligence agencies. He goes, headline, so this is what capitulation by a great power looks like. As if Xi Jinping and China capitulated to little old Australia. Um, Craig, I, was, I had this, did this interview yesterday with uh, Jerry Gray um, in China, and we talked about... If you did a Venn diagram mm -hmm. of um, China's trade and Australia's trade, it's like a penny farthing, <laughs> right? And then if, where they overlap, mm -hmm. the trade with each other, it's almost all of our trade and a tiny little 3% or something of China's trade. And we're pretending that China needed the meeting with us. We didn't need the meeting with China, right? Wake up and uh, sniff the wind, people. This was... This was our government realising that, hang on, um, we are getting carried away here with what we've done. Um, and I bet you Macron, not Macron, McGowan in Western Australia is in Albanese's ear all the time because 
If China ever decides that they'll get their iron ore from somewhere else, right? Turn off the last person out of WA, turn, out, turn, out, turn off the lights. But I also wanted to highlight this. Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, who Albanese made a big deal about going over to him straight away to repair that relationship that Morrison screwed up. What has he come out and said yesterday? He has said, Australia's decision to acquire nuclear submarines risks provoking a nuclear confrontation with China and strips the nation of its ability to independently defend itself. And that issue there is exactly what we have been jumping up and down with about with this stupid AUKUS deal. When you, when, mm -hmm. you, when you take in nuclear capacity in terms of weaponry, you become a nuclear target. And the same applies to the B-52 bombers up there. The, 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 if, if, Macron, if Emmanuel Macron is you know, one of those strategic partners we like talking about, if, he's, if he can state it so blatantly, this is why we've been saying it. What, our policy is causing the confrontation. China responds. We put the Marines in Darwin before China started building. The Marines in Darwin are called the tip of the spear. The, the, the US Marines are called the tip of the spear. In Darwin, they are, they are so close to shutting off the Malacca Straits and, and choking China off from its oil. We did that in 2011. China responded in 2013 by starting to build up the islands, right? We, and then we turn around and say, oh, they're building up the islands. No, they are reacting every single time to what we and the Americans do. So um, now you've got someone of the stature of Macron saying exactly what we've been warning about um, as well. But I wanted to do this in a slightly different way, Craig, because I think we can present this more positively. Because um, I think, you know, I want people to... How do you... Don't just listen to Craig Isherwood and Robbie Barwick saying you've been lied to, right? Um, if, you, if you pay attention, you can find... You can, and, and, and look at it without prejudice. You can find the evidence out there of just what China is like. And I want to, we're going to now play a, a video. It's going to go for eight and a half minutes. We're going to end the show with this. But um, it's from one of my friends, Nuri Vitachi, who was a, a Hong Kong resident. Um, he was also a New York Times journalist. He was actually a mainstream journalist. He wrote for the New York Times and all that sort of stuff. Um, he, was, he was initially sympathetic to the independence movement in Hong Kong. And then as a resident, he saw how they were being lied to, mm. right? And he's very effective in highlighting in these short videos he does what's actually happening in China and Hong Kong and those places. And this one is talking to an ex, uh, a wonderful woman named Tings Chak. And they're talking about China's poverty alleviation program. And it's in the eight and a half minutes, it's, it's a, you get it, it gets into some detail. And you get the, 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 the very keen sense of what's involved here. Because the, the, the landmark figure, the headline figure, 850 million, is impressive. Mm. Everyone, we always cite that 850 million, a billion people out of poverty. Let's watch how it was actually done in their description. Hey, I'm here with Tings Chak. Tings Chak is a researcher with the uh, Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Right? That's right. Uh, we're going to talk about the biggest problem in the world, which is poverty, right? In the last four decades, 70% of the world's poverty reduction, that's 70% of everyone who was taken out of poverty was taken out of poverty in China. So that's a big contribution made by one country. 
That is pretty amazing. So um, if you think about it, that means that the, the Chinese government, the, the hated, reviled Chinese government, uh, has actually been the biggest contributor to, to rescuing the, the women, children and men of the world um, out of starvation level poverty and, and giving them food, shelter and dignity. Absolutely. I mean, I think just to give an kind of absolute numbers, it's hard to comprehend, but in the last four decades, 850 million people were lifted out of extreme poverty in China. I think it gets rarely reported on. Yeah, I mean, it should be a huge thing. Like if a white guy called Steve wakes up in Camden Town in London, I know right? Steve. <laughs> oh, you know, Steve. <laughs> Supposing some white guy anywhere wakes up and says, I found a way to solve poverty. Look, this is how you do it. A, B, C, bang. Surely the world would beat a path to his door and everybody would, would adopt those methods, but we don't see this happening. So, so why is that? I mean, I think that's one of the reasons, um, as the Tricontinental, we wanted to do a study on, on the poverty issue in China, because it's something, it's one of the greatest stories of humanity ever, really. And it's a historic achievement. Uh, have there been any, like, uh, Western documentaries made on this topic? Sure. I mean, I actually had a chance to talk with um, uh, Robert Lawrence Kuhn, who's quite interesting. He spent a lot of time since the 80s uh, going back between the US and, and China. Uh, he's actually a, a venture capitalist uh, and, and hmm. saw the growth of China and saw the, the, the changes. And so he did a documentary really um, quite fascinating. It was a partnership between PBS, which is a public state India in the US, and then also CGTN, which is the English language or international um, public media in China. And together they did a, um, they went to the basically countryside to, to do a documentary on how the processes work, you know, who's in the countryside, who gets lifted out of poverty, what are the democratic processes in the grassroots level, which is quite interesting. Shortly thereafter, it got pulled off air in the U.S. It was de facto censored um, based on some editorial concerns. So there's also some interests, I think, in not talking about poverty or the alleviation of poverty because somehow that might seem threatening to, you know, hear those <laughs> stories from China. Yes, yes. Somebody might think, um, oh, uh, another government is doing their job better than we are. So we kind of that. What's the secret? What do they do? Probably the most important is this three guarantees. So in order for someone to be considered lifted out of extreme poverty, you have to make sure you have access to uh, compulsory free education. In China, it's nine years. Mm -hmm. You have access to basic medical health. Uh, and you have access to safe housing that has running water and electricity. So only when all these sort of indices mm -hmm. come together, looking at a kind of multi-dimensional, multi-layered approach to the poverty, mm -hmm. then someone can be lifted out of poverty. So that is something that's probably quite... I think innovative and new um, that China contributed mm. to the you know efforts around poverty reduction that have been mm. happening around the world, but oftentimes aren't sustained mm -hmm. beyond a particular program or particular funding. That you know when it ends, people fall back into poverty. The second part is really sending people the, to the countryside to understand the realities of what's happening. So you have to go literally neighborhood to neighborhood, village to village, knock on the doors, and they sent 800,000 people from the party to actually knock on doors and figure out assess. They sent 800,000 people to knock mm -hmm. on doors to find who was poor and where they lived. Yep, and from there um, created a, a system of saying, okay, there are actually 100, 100 million people still mm -hmm. living under ex uh, extreme poverty based on the set mm -hmm. of measures I just mentioned. 
And then after that, they sent another three million people to go and live and work mm -hmm. and pair with the families. Um, you know, one person might be paired with five families and you stay and live in the countryside until, you know, you figure out, oh, what does, you know, Xiao Wang need, you know, to make sure he stays in school? What does, you know, the anti Zhang need so that, you know, she can deal with the fact that she has a disability and, mm. and you know, can't work? And it's that level of, of you know, uh, addressing poverty. That's why it's called, you know, precise or targeted poverty alleviation because it was really looking at, at the specific cases, a human level, mm. not a statistical level of, okay, we have 100 million people, okay, then let's send 100 million dollars. It's right. not quite like that. I mean, it's a, it's a tricky topic to make interesting, but uh, I mean, the Chinese TV people did do it last year. They did a, a series called Minning Town, uh, which was based on a true story, as they say. Uh, did you watch it? They didn't broadcast it here. Yeah, I, I, I definitely binge watched it. You laugh and you cry. And basically it's about, I mean, one of the, of the, the party members being sent to the countryside and helping a very poor village. Um, in this earlier phase of poverty alleviation in the kind of 80s period, you know, you have people migrating to the cities to work in the factories, but then you also have the, you know, the villages that needed a boost, you know, and in terms of production. So it was about mushroom farming. There's also reality TV shows too of, you know, celebrities going to the countryside. And, and it's just funny. There's like a lot of, you know, let's say pop culture also around this that helps kind of, I think, support uh, the idea that this is a national project. So I think that's quite interesting. It's not just a government project, but also something that people support. If you ask an average person, they'll say, yeah, poverty alleviation is something to be proud of. It's interesting that these studies of poverty alleviation, like, like Minningtown and these movies, are sometimes quite critical of the government, too. Also in the study, and also in Minningtown, it talks about questions of corruption. You know, there's a lot of, you know, we know that in China right now, corruption and anti-corruption is a big part. And there have been a lot of cases found around corruption, but it's also quite publicly announced and quite publicly addressed and and one thing that's really interesting about that documentary from Lawrence um, uh, Robert Lawrence Kuhn is that uh, there is a whole system of you know third party evaluation that happens so to make sure that you know officials aren't doing you know aren't, aren't making an extra buck here and there and and so they send also brigades or groupings of students university mm -hmm. students that come and there's a really interesting scene in the film uh, in the documentary, where the students are basically grilling the officials and say, okay, look at the books. We went to every house to check, and they do these random searches, and there's a whole kind of third-party way. You know, someone sent me a video of uh, taken in Xinjiang of the day the poverty alleviation official has to leave town. Yeah, and every village member, they all line up to hug him. And, you know, you can't, you can't fake something like that. Yeah. I mean, if you've been living there, I mean, a lot of these people are sent to villages, they don't have existing connections, you know, and they might not even speak the local dialect. And you live there, you're far from your family, you miss home too. And you're there amongst the people for years. You build those real relationships with people. Also, people build trust. Wonderful. Okay, I've been talking to, to Tings Chak, who's written a wonderful book on poverty alleviation methods uh, in China, uh, full, of, full of data and statistics and detail about how it's done. Thank you very much, Tings. Thank you, Lorraine. Craig, that, that strikes me as a country that deserves credit and with which we, as a country, should want to cooperate economically. Would you agree? Absolutely, Robert. What if we were to collaborate economically with China? Like, really collaborate, not this 
half-assed, you know, American ass-covering operation. Yep. I mean, there's one thing that strikes me. Albanese's been in government for six months and you know, Morrison was in government for nine years. You can't, in terms of the slow workings of government, turn things around quickly. If what he did with this meeting with Xi is an indication that he's trying to turn this huge Queen Mary around in terms of policy, that's very good. However, we've got to stay on his case and make sure that there's no room for him to say, go back to the crap that we took up under Scott Morrison. It's in our national interest to collaborate and work with China. And what you see in that video is China. We've had people, our staff have gone to China. They've come back with the same stories. And, you know, China is not a pariah. It's simply following what we call the American system of political economy. It's directing public credit into large-scale infrastructure development, which is also health, it's also education, which is what you saw in that video, educating and bringing up yep. and alleviating poverty. All of that's being funded. You notice their metrics were not financial. They were no, no well, financial. How much income you're getting? No. Do you have electricity? Do you have education? Exactly. What was the third Physical one? economy. Physical economy. Physical economy in the point that this is what you do to in, in, in empower an economy and bring it up. And this is what the West is terrified about. What China has demonstrated is the principles that we stand for, which is called the American system of political economy, not the crap that it's we've got now. It's called that because they pioneered it in the, the back 1800s. In, yeah, people like Alexander Hamilton were key yeah. in you know, writing reports on the power oh, of you public saw credit. The, you saw the musical yeah, too. No, yeah, no, it was excellent. I mean, I'm not one for rap music, but what I was really uh, um, enjoyed was the detailed history Yeah that ordinary people don't usually get. And I also love the idea of the demographics of the people that go there, because I do go to the occasional opera, and all you see is a sea of grey hair. Oh, yeah, but yeah, okay. not in the case of Hamilton, because yeah, you yeah. saw lots of young people. It was very well done. And like I said, I'm not a fan of rap, Robbie, but the, the point is that even I was able to look through the rap and the, 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 the presentations and saw the depth and the... Uh, the creativity of what yeah, was being yeah. done, and that's really the key here. Look at the creativity of, of how it was presented and to learn something historically. If you're uh, Melbourne-based, are you going to be in Melbourne between now and was it uh, early, early January? Early January. Uh, but then it's going get to Brisbane. Along. Get along. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Look, if you have an opportunity to go, get along to it. Now, look, very good. Um, you know, just think about what you've just watched there. I'm going to put another um, link in the comments below, Craig, which is to the... The television show that they reference in that clip where they dramatise this question of what was involved in what's been involved in alleviating poverty in China. Mm -hmm. And it's got it's on YouTube actually. Is it's it? English and it's got English subtitles. Oh, right. So, so if you're interested in watching a Chinese made drama, um, we'll put that link below, etc. Uh, look at it without prejudice, right? And just say, okay, isn't this a way we can solve problems? And yep. it's and it's certainly commendable. So Contrast that to all the all the lies you've been told for the last five years. That when it mattered, when it when it was really necessary, the government's just prepared to completely ignore them so they can have a meeting like they did this week. If Robbie, if we were to truly trade with China in the way that we could, we are going to need public credit to expand our economy in order to take advantage of everything we our country has. You take for one sec. Think about the development of nuclear power. Look what we could do there in collaboration with the Chinese in order to provide vast amounts of cheap electricity. Yep. And that's one of the key things that was done you know, with the Commonwealth Bank. It funded local councils who were then responsible for electricity in order to provide cheap power for all the rural industries that needed it. No, exactly. I mean, the, the examples are just mind-blowing. All right, Craig, got to run? Yeah, Robbie. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks to the viewer for joining. Uh, remember, 
make um, calls and uh, emails about the uh, regional banking inquiry. Tune in next week for more of the Citizens Report. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.